listen to your breath. I'm Dylan Brody. Welcome to Portrait of the Autist as an Old Man. Uh, this is episode one, and it will start with a, a pre-recorded essay that I wrote that really started this whole thing off, and then the foreword, preface, forward, preface, and then preface, the first, the very first part of the Modern Depression Guidebook. This book is uh, coming out as an audiobook very soon, so we're going to be getting the, those chapters one at a time at this podcast, as well as my thoughts on discovery in the world and of the self and all the stuff. I hope you enjoy this essay. It's up at Medium now. Portrait of the Autist as an Old Man. It's official. I'm autistic. Almost exactly a year ago, I made the mistake of calling my sister for her birthday instead of sending a quick text from a burner phone. I strive to be always increasingly honest in my work. For years, I said on stage, my sister is gay. I love her like a brother. It's a lie. She left home when I was 11. We never spent much time together. I was in a dark place just then, on the phone, depressed, isolated, desperate for human contact, kindness, empathy, and insight. I made my second mistake. I showed vulnerability in front of a member of my family. I told my sister that I had been feeling isolated, that it felt as though I had alienated everyone I had ever known or loved. I asked her if she knew why she'd seemed to dislike me so much when we were children. She said, Well, I saw you at one of those nightclubs when you were still in New York, and you did a joke where you used the phrase hostile lesbian. It was really offensive. I don't remember what the joke was, but it was a word package. You said it like you'd said it a hundred times, hostile lesbian. I said, Okay. I didn't think that a joke I'd written 30 years earlier, when I was in my 20s, could possibly have made her be a dick to me when we were kids. But I let her have this. It was her birthday call, after all. She could run the conversation. She went on. You think any woman who isn't available to you is hostile. That's what I think. Because... I said, hostile lesbian in a joke in 1984? You want to engage with me? This is what it looks like. I said, you know I went to Sarah Lawrence, right? I've dealt with a lot of different kinds of lesbians. Dealt with? Do you even hear yourself? A lot of different kinds of lesbians? What if that was Jews? What if I said, I've dealt with a lot of different kinds of Jews, Dylan? She had slipped into her most superior tone, with which she may scold unassailably positioned as a Jewish lesbian persecuted for sex, gender preference, and historical culture, and thus better informed and morally attuned than I, a cisgender male, could ever be. I said, um, I live in Hollywood. I have dealt with a lot of different kinds of Jews. I'm not sure what we're discussing at this point. Jesus, that's just gross now. That's not even funny, you know? Why do you have to deal with people? 
Why can't you just go somewhere and join a community and be a part of it? I'm not good at community. I have a group of friends I hang at the edge and observe mostly. I think they get me. That's not being part of a community. I don't know what's wrong with you. Are you sure you're not on the spectrum? Well, it was good talking to you. Have a great rest of your birthday. Yeah, hey, thanks for calling. I went downstairs and asked my wife if she remembered a joke of mine that I might still have been doing when we met 30 years earlier that had the phrase hostile lesbian in it. She said, Oh, honey, did you call your sister? I nodded. Then I said, She thinks I might be on the spectrum. It just felt like a cruel jab as she said it, not like something she actually thought. My wife, a teacher of grade school students in the modern world, said, Oh, that makes sense. When we were kids, my sister and I, autism wasn't thought of as a spectrum. Autism referred to the flappy, head-bangy kids who got sort of lumped in with the physically disabled who had difficulty communicating, the emotionally disabled who resisted learning, the intellectually disabled, and so on. Autism in the 70s was thrown around by insensitive children and adults alike as a general point of ridicule and exclusion. At that time, in the common and the professional educators' vernacular, retarded served as a catch-all phrase for the intellectually challenged. Kids were normal or they were broken. Some of the normal kids were weird. I was normal weird. Reading during lunch instead of yelling conversation over Formica tabletops. Enjoying the subject matter in class. Making casual conversation with my teachers about the curriculum during recess. To progressive thinkers in a changing world, keeping up with the DSM versions, my sister's comment doesn't read as particularly mean. Just a possible explanation for some social issues I've experienced over a lifetime. My wife assesses children constantly. She deals with many different kinds of young minds, the way I've dealt with many different kinds of lesbians and many different kinds of Jews. She said, I'll bet you could do a Google search for some self-diagnostic tools and see what comes up. I went to my office and dove into a hyper-focused research spiral and almost immediately learned that autism frequently presents as a tendency to dive into a hyper-focused research spiral. I pored over websites and read articles and talked to my therapist. I ticked boxes. I ticked a lot of boxes. I said to my father in a phone call, I th think I might be autistic. He snorted a laugh and said, you're not autistic. That's absurd. He was a young adult before the term came into use. Who knows what he associates with the word, what it might mean about him as a parent if I were autistic, what it might mean if I were and he hadn't figured it out in my childhood. Elements of my experience on planet Earth that had never made sense before began snapping into focus. Occasional anger outbursts that I had attributed to some childhood trauma or hidden rage that had occupied me often in therapy had troubled me deeply. Now it seemed they were just neurological responses to certain kinds of overload and could be dispelled with some simple stimming exercises. My father taught me in the faraway and very different world of the 1970s in upstate New York that if one worked hard, had talent, and kept one's head down, 
Someone will notice, and you will thrive in any job you choose. Everyone who ever looked at my work spoke of my great skill and talent. I certainly worked very hard. I attributed my lack of professional success in the mainstream entertainment industry to my objectionable personality. My inability to understand why some people find me so utterly off-putting and my gut-punch reaction to such rejection melted away. No matter what I do, it seems very few people like me very much. I've gone out of my way to do all the things that charming and popular people do. I make eye contact as close to 30% of the time as I can figure. I strive to be generous with my time, support, and laughter for other people's efforts. As a child, I learned that confident people stood a certain way, shoulders back, weight centered, and so on, so I adopted that posture. I add, I could be wrong, but to the beginning of sentences to seem less arrogant, even when I am sure of my facts. Now, able to see these mannerisms and behaviors as autistic masking traits, I could more clearly assess how I might be perceived. I understood the behaviors that made me fear in adolescence that I was a sociopath. With the possibility of autism as a lens through which to view my apparent punchability as a child, my weirdly non-athletic relationship to my body, and a dozen other great questions of my psyche, I began to find a kind of grace for myself. Things I had been trying desperately to fix through psychological exploration might be neurological in nature. I called my insurer for a proper diagnosis about six, maybe seven months ago. They have only one guy who does this. He has a full schedule. He put me on the calendar for October, but he had a cancellation yesterday and I got to go into his office. In a three-hour interview, he asked questions and held a clipboard. I am most definitely autistic. I tick a whole bunch of boxes in a constellation which, when traced, draws a picture across the sky of me punching the side of an ice cream truck, shouting, stop it with the bells, god damn it, what are you trying to do, attract laughing children? It changes nothing of who I am. No need to switch therapists or see a specialist. But boy, does it feel good to release decades of self-directed judgmental blame over things that I've not yet learned to adjust. For at least some of them, I was looking in the wrong place for the causes and the corrections. More importantly, now I can write and talk about this experience without feeling that I am lying, that I am an imposter. This diagnosis gives me a whole new box of tools to work with as I parse out with newly sensitized fingertips the psychological from the neurological, the psychic wound from the synaptic wiring. This may free up time for me to figure out the baffling, mysterious question of where I might have gotten the idea in my twenties that one or more lesbians might be hostile. I look forward to dealing with that. I might owe my sister a word of gratitude. I'm not going to call. I could be wrong, but such a sentiment might be taken as a sign of weakness. The Modern Depression Guidebook, written by Dylan Brody in 1994, read by Dylan Brody. Preface 
Like millions of other Americans, I sometimes get depressed. This happens frequently enough that I am getting quite good at it. My mood can swing like Diana Krall on a three-martini lunch. On a bright day when everything is going well, I can find the hidden source of sorrow, the magic trigger, and voila! The bleakness of the world comes clear to me, and once more, I am depressed. Through years of experience, I have developed, or observed myself to be practicing, certain straightforward techniques to help a momentary sadness build upon itself, resonating and reverberating like feedback, doubling and redoubling down the corridors of my empty little life until, at last, I am comfortably ensconced in my apartment, using up my sick days to watch Little House on the Prairie with my cat, who has made it very clear that he will not be coming near enough to comfort me until I take a shower. With this book, I hope to share some of my hard-won expertise with others who may seek to improve their skills in experiencing, maintaining, and utilizing a depression. Whether you are a one-time depression sufferer due to a painful breakup or a chronic depressive whose sadness recurs regularly, there is no excuse for not putting time and effort into getting the lowest possible lows out of your moments of despair. Here is where this guidebook comes in. With useful exercises to help you improve your sense of self-loathing, easy access listings of worldly injustices to ponder, and helpful hints on how to break your personal hygiene habit, this book is sure to have your mood spiraling downward like Larry Flint at the Guggenheim. But depth is not all there is to a depression. A depression must also be valued for its duration. In order to ensure that a bout of melancholia lasts a good long while, attention must be paid to detail in the vital settling-in period. If you stick with the program, follow the simple step-by-step -step instructions in this book, cut your personal productivity and increase your TV watching time sufficiently, I can personally promise that you will see no mood brighten before its time. Some of what I say may be already familiar to you. You may have figured out on your own that a steady diet of Chips Ahoy cookies and Yoo-Hoo throws off your sugar balance and helps to generate nausea and palpitations, which you are then free to interpret as horrible, life-threatening illnesses. Still, you are likely to find other useful ideas that may never have come to you naturally. You may have overlooked the benefits of leaving your laundry unwashed and scattered about your home in unsorted piles, for instance. It may never have occurred to you to deliberately skew your sleep patterns so that you snooze through business hours and have the long, lonely night to ponder the missed opportunities with your eyes riveted to the wee hours televised parade of skincare infomercials and send us your gold ads. From the handy list of unhealthy comfort foods to the easy-to-follow instructions on how to alienate your friends, this book will help you make your next depression the best ever. And, once the blues have deepened into black, even old hands at the sadness game are bound to find new insight and inspiration in a unique and entirely original approach to the contemplation of suicide. You will feel your spirit plummet 
as your fleeting fantasies of death take shape in your mind, forming complex and intricate plots, leaving you with a dark, lingering death wish of which you can really be proud. So, whether you are happy enough to delude yourself into believing that life is a pleasant experience of which depression is a small but necessary part, or depressed enough to realize that life is miserable with occasional flashes of illusory joy, you are ready for this guidebook. Whether you are in it now or you feel with a gnawing certainty that it is coming soon, you know depression is a fact of life. You might as well give it your best shot. Are you a good candidate for depression? Take the quiz. Are you sad right now? Have you ever been sad? Do your moods change depending on how you feel? Have you ever experienced great joy that you are not experiencing at this moment? Do you feel the occasional need to be reassured by those whom you trust? Do you feel the occasional desire to avoid talking to those whom you trust and could offer you reassurance? Do you view each day as a great gaping maw of time that must be filled? Do you view each day as a bright opportunity for change even though no day to date has ever brought that change? Is success an opportunity for disappointment? Have you ever experienced success, opportunity, or disappointment? Have you ever considered suicide? Do you believe in a god or gods? Do you now, or have you ever had parents? If you answered yes to none or more of these questions, congratulations. You qualify as a candidate. This has been the first episode of Portrait of the Autist as an Old Man, dropping first at Patreon, every Monday, and two weeks later, wherever podcasts are found. Portrait of the Autist as an Old Man is an Act of Voice Productions podcast. We thank you for listening. I produce Portrait of the Autist as an Old Man weekly with a good deal of gratitude toward Ayesola Lewis, as well as Active Voice Productions. If you want to know more about Active Voice Productions, you can go to activevoiceproductions.com. If you want to know more about my work, and if you want to hear the entirety of the Modern Depression Guidebook as a newly released audiobook, head over to dylanbrody.com, scroll down. All of my work is available there at dylanbrody.com slash emporium. Let me know if there's anything you would like to hear more of, less of, or what have you. Just send your notes to comments at activevoiceproductions.com. And if you're not cruel and insulting, they'll pass them on to me. Thanks.